I want to preface my talk, and I wonder if you could pop this, the first slide up, with two questions. And um, I guess I want these questions to be permeating your mind as we go through the, the talk. First question, it's a bit wishy-washy, this one. What is love? And some of you of a certain vintage are thinking Hadaway, some of you are thinking Beatles songs, some of you good Christian people have started to think about the Bible. What is love? What does the Bible tell us? what love is. Second question, and this is the one that should cut a bit, and it cut me actually as I thought about this parable in the week. When was the last time that you stopped? When was the last time out of care and compassion that you just stopped? And I started to think about Jesus, and I thought, well, did Jesus stop? Was Jesus a stopper? And then I read through a bit of John's gospel, and I needed to get through a couple of chapters, and this phrase that kept coming up was, Filled with compassion, Jesus did this. Filled with compassion, Jesus did that. Jesus stopped out of compassion and love all the time. He could barely get to a place. Most of the stuff you seem to read about Jesus was what happened when he was going somewhere. And out of compassion, he stopped. When was the last time you stopped? I guess as Christians, we should never really end up getting anywhere if we had the same kind of compassion that Christ has got. So two questions. When was the last time you stopped and... What is love? There are, there are two questions really that sort of direct the traffic in terms of this text. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the second question is, who is my neighbor? Sometimes we ask questions that aren't really questions at all, don't we? My wife said to me just this week, do you think the grass is getting a bit long? And that's not really a question, is it? That's, you're going to need to cut the grass, Ash. She didn't want me to go outside and get a tape measure and have a look and come back and say, well, I've just Googled it, and actually socially acceptable grass length is about three centimeters, so we're good for now. She wanted me to cut the grass. It was a question, but it was a leading question. It wasn't a naive question. It wasn't really even that inquisitive. It revealed an already formed opinion. And the question that we're going to look at in the text today reveals an already formed opinion. I wonder if you could just... Um, this is an expert in the law, so let's just, if you've got your Bibles with you, I guess you, you might have it on, the, on your phone or whatever, you could flick back and see where this guy, this expert, gets some of his expertise from. Leviticus 19.18, I'll give you a second if you want, you don't have to actually, it's one verse, but it's a good, ex, good thumb exercise. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one, another, one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Now, there's an extra Jewish book, I think it's called the Shammai, I'm saying that right, which has got some additional teachings in it. So little addendums onto what's onto the verses that's in God's inspired word. Do not seek revenge, it said in God's word, or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And the extra teachings that the Jews would put on there would say, and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemy. So that gives us a little window onto the worldview of this expert. He might well be of the opinion that, yeah, okay, Jesus, you tell me to love my neighbor, I'll do that, so long as he's like me, so long as he's Jewish, so long as he dresses the same as me and he understands the same rules as me. This expert in the law is trying to engage Jesus in a debate about what it means to be saved. And the word it used in my notes was that he tries to justify himself. And when I sort of tried to dig into that, I thought, well, what he's really trying to do is have an argument with Jesus. He's an expert in the law, and Jesus is the expert in the law. And when you get two experts together, what happens? You get arguments. And that's what this guy's brewing for. He's asking question after question. 
And when I want to row with my wife, when I'm in the car, I just keep asking questions to trigger him off. And that's what he's doing. He's asked another question. He wants a row. And Jesus looks at this expert in his pride with his puffed up knowledge. And he says, I'm not going to give you a row. I'm not going to give, have a theological debate with you. I'm going to tell you a really simple story that everyone can get about what Christian life and Christian living is all about. Jesus teaches this proud, puffed up expert a bit of humility. Now that's not to do away with knowledge. The Bible says, I think it's Solomon, get wisdom. Wisdom's good. The Bible would encourage us to do that. But if it just ends at how much stuff that we know, I wonder what it's worth. Often, when God's at work, this is where he starts. Jesus starts with this proud expert with humility. And often with us in our lives, Jesus would start with humility. You want a church that is unified and going, going strong? Read through the book of Philippians, I think. I can't remember the chapter. I should really have made a note of the chapter. Humility is what it would tell you to do. Understand your place in God's big plan. Understand what God's done for you. Humility is how to achieve unity in a, in a church. You want a strong marriage? Physical attraction can help. One of you knowing how to turn the oven on can help. A roof over your head can help. But if you're married and you've been married a few years and you've not learned humility yet, then it's coming. You're going to learn it. Humility is, where, is how to keep a strong marriage. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to follow Jesus' teachings, then reading your Bible helps. Attending church will help. But you start with Jesus on your knees. You start by accepting your position before him is just not right. And you come on your knees. And in my Christian experience, you have to get back on your knees again a few times. Humility is where God would start with us. Jesus took a proud man and he teaches him humility. Could you pop the next slide on, please? Thanks. So when I... Often when I preach, when I come to an expert in the law, I see immediately, a kind of Pharisee, Sadducee character, I see immediately the pantomime villain. I see like, okay, this guy's the bad guy. So I try and look, and I think, well, when I'm preaching, I'm going to have to explore which parts of his personality is wrong. But I think it's worth just stopping for a second and acknowledging the bits that this expert gets right. He asks the right man, Jesus, the right question, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, he even gets the answer right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It gets all this right. But what Jesus does when he meets people is he sees straight through the nonsense, doesn't he? And he looks straight into this guy's life and he said, yeah, there's something missing here. And what is the word he uses to describe what he should do? He says, do this and you should live. So this guy knows all the stuff. He's an expert and Jesus is pretty happy with his answers and how much he knows. But he can see but it's not backed up by evidence of how he's living his life. Jesus stands in front of this expert, somebody who knows the scriptures inside out, and what he says to him is, love is something you need to live out. This is the bit that's missing with you. Love is essential. I'm not a subscriber to Love Wins theology. I don't know if you're familiar with Love Wins theology. You can ask Paul or somebody else afterwards about it if they want to tell them what it is. I don't go along with that, but neither do I read the Bible and think, that I can look down my nose at love and think that it's just wishy-washy. It's fundamental in the Bible. You can't get past it. Let's consider this passage when we think about how important in our Christian lives love is. 
It's 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak, and this is one of those wedding passages, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now I really enjoy Matty Boyd's drum playing, genuinely enjoy his drum playing, and his enthusiasm for life generally, but particularly his drum playing. But if I was to have to put up with him just bashing on the cymbals and we took away the good guitarist and everything else, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang around. I'd be out the door. I'll be honest with you. If it's just that empty bashing of the cymbal, then what's there? Listen to the list of qualities that this text puts towards us. It's an expert Christian, isn't it? If I speak in tongues, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries, if I've got all knowledge, if I've got faith that can move mountains, if I give all I possess to the poor and my body to hardship, this is like the perfect Christian. Imagine you've got this Christian in your church. You'd be like, this is amazing. And yet this text would say, even with all those brilliant qualities, without love, it is like Boydie rattling the cymbals and everybody walks out of the room. It's nothing. I wonder if you know any Christians like that. Got all the knowledge, know the book inside out, all the right answers, all the right questions, but just a lot of white noise because it's not backed up by how they live. This here is my fourth wedding ring. It's disgraceful. Men, I'm sure everybody in this room has just still got their first. This is my fourth wedding ring. The first wedding ring that I lost, which is an incredible way to start an anecdote, the first wedding ring that I lost sucked off my finger in an industrial accident at work. And I thought to myself, immediately as it happened, what are the actions of a remorseful man? What should I do? What do men do when they screw up in this way? And I was driving home thinking, you know, what's in the idiot man textbook for what you do in this scenario? I don't know. And I drove past a petrol station and it was like, ah, there you go. And I got flowers and I got chocolates and I bought an OK magazine (laughs) by way of an apology. And I took them home to my wife. And she, and she looks like butter wouldn't melt, but she's, she can have her darker moments. And she stood at the top of the stairs. And she says, what have you done? In a more Scottish accent than that. What have you done? And I, and I st- stood in front of her with, with my meekness. And I said, I've lost my wedding ring. And I learned two really valuable lessons that day. First one, never buy a woman flowers from a petrol station. They know there must be a giveaway petrol station droop that just you know shows you what they are. But the second one was that... What my wife really wanted from me was genuine love. She didn't want just a prescribed list of actions, which is what I did. She wanted genuine love. She just said, I just want you to say sorry and love me. What I did was empty because I just went to the textbook to see what a guy is supposed to do when he messes up. Love is essential in our Christian life and our Christian walk. The Pharisee asked the question, who is my neighbor? And in some respects, this question gives him away because what it does is show that he's trying to put a limit on how much love he's willing to give out. A better question would be, how can I be a good neighbor? What more can I do to help? But he turns it the other way around and puts a limit on it. Who is my neighbor? What's the least I have to do to get by? So let's dig around this this parable a little bit. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was set upon by robbers, beaten, beaten, 
and left for dead. So I think it's interesting, and I don't know why, Jesus doesn't tell us the um, ethnicity of this guy, a certain man, doesn't tell us who he is. I assumed you because he was in Jerusalem. He went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, so we know that Jerusalem's on a hill, so pretty much anywhere you go is down. But don't think like driving from Leeds to London down, think walking around the back of a Castleford Street after a dodgy Friday night down. Think a vulnerable place to be. That's the description, that's the, that's the setting for the story. Then you get the two guys come along who you think these are the guys who should help. A priest came along and passed by, and a Levite came along and passed by. These are guys, so as Jesus is telling this story, he's saying, here's the guys who you're supposed to think are going to help. Now, the priest has perhaps got a get-out-of-jail card in that he's not allowed to touch a dead body, but the text doesn't really let him away with that because he doesn't even go over to see if the guy's dead. What does it say? It says he passes by on the other side. He ducks it completely, as does the Levite. And then Jesus throws us the curveball. It's a bit like when you tell an Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman joke. You go Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman next. When you start a story, priest, Levite, the Jews that are listening to you are expecting guy from the hill country or Benjamite or something like that. And Jesus throws at them Samaritan. Now the word Samaritan has lost a bit of its intended gravity, I think, when Jesus says this. We think of Samaritan, and when I read the story, I'm expecting him to help because of how the use of the word Samaritan has changed in the 2,000 years since Jesus told this story. But initially, Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them. They had sold out when the invading empires came in. They were the worst of people. Jesus is thinking of the worst people group you could imagine to make this point. Verse 36 says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert replies, the one who had mercy. What does it teach us? Who is our neighbor? Anyone. Everyone. Anyone in need. Teaching points. Loving people that are like you, that look like you, sound like you, is a nice thing. It's a good thing. But it's a trait that you have with everybody else pretty much in the world. Loving people that are not like you, that are different to you, that have different beliefs to you, that's a Christ-like trait, and that's a smaller group. As I reflected on this, I thought back to my church experience. I've probably been to three churches for long periods of time in my life, and I thought about the limits and the prejudices that can exist in church. And and it's brilliant coming here because I've got no idea. It's lovely. I've got no idea what you're thinking of, what your prejudices are. I've got no idea. But I imagine there's some because in every other church I've been, there's been some. And what's really amazed me as I reflected back was that they were really strong. And it was okay to have some, some prejudices. I was at church in Scotland. And it was okay to tell pretty dodgy jokes about English guys. There was a, that was a legitimate prejudice. It's not just, sorry, that was an easy target, attacking the Scots. I shouldn't have done that. But it exists in our churches. I've heard openly racist comments in church. People who really just put limits on how much they're willing to show God's love to other people. But then as I thought back a bit more, as I started to do what you shouldn't do and judge everybody else and think, oh yeah, everybody else is bad, I thought about into my own life. So from about 19 to about 25, I had some, probably some prejudice issues. Not, nothing drastic, you know, fallout stuff. And I pretty much, I didn't realize it at the time, but I guess I'd resolved to really dislike somebody, probably even hate them. And I kind of just stuck to that. I thought, this is okay, I can hate this person, these people. And retrospectively, my walk with God 
stopped because of the hate, because I'd drawn a line in the sand. What I could do, what God could do with me, had stopped because of my prejudice. What this passage would tell us is that there are no limits with God's love and no limits with how we should show it. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So as I've said already, the expert asked the question, who is my neighbor, to limit how much love I should show. And when you read in the text just what love this Samaritan shows, it's incredible. Jesus says there are no boundaries with love. He saw him, took pity on him, went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, took care of him. When I think about this teaching, I think it's difficult because as a human being, what I try to do and this is maybe my culture, I like to put things in boxes. So I like to think when I go to work, when I come home from work, I've done work. Work's done for now. And I can go home and I can watch the TV or something like that. But we can't do that with how Jesus teaches love. What we want to do is say, right, I've done love. I did it yesterday. I'm finished with it now. I don't need to do it today. But imagine if you did that in your marriage or in any other environment. It doesn't work. And that's not how Jesus teaches it. Jesus teaches it as being more than what's expected. He teaches it has been limitless. And I think it's in our human nature to try and say, right, I'm going to do that. But that's all I'm going to do. Jesus says that love is limitless. And I've just written down a few questions here that I thought I'd run past you just to annoy you and try and get you to be challenged. When was the last time, I guess I asked it at the start, that you stopped? When was the last time you emptied out your wallet? to help somebody, completely emptied out. We don't carry cash anymore, do we? But you know what I'm trying to get at. When was the last time you went out of your way to help someone? When was the last time you really cared for someone? When was the last time, at complete cost to yourself, that you did something good for somebody else? When was the last time that you loved your neighbor? Could you pop the next slide on, please? Verse 36, which of these three then do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert replies, the one who had mercy. Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. So there's a really obvious contrast, I think, in this story. There's the guys, the priest and the Levite, who should have all the knowledge. The text would lead us, Jesus' story would lead us to think these guys should really know what to do. And then we've got the Samaritan who particularly 2,000 years ago, we've got no right really to expect him to do anything because of the kind of person that, for the sake of the story, that he's supposed to be. We've got the guys with all the knowledge. We've got the guy who we can expect nothing from. And it's the guys with the knowledge that do nothing and the guy who doesn't have any knowledge who acts compassionately. This love that we have in us from our Savior Jesus Christ should look like something. Otherwise, it's just all white noise. It's just all talk. I remember a few years ago, before Jude had said that she'd marry me, I went out to meet her parents who were missionaries in Africa. And it was pretty obvious that I wasn't doing a good job 
of impressing them. They didn't like the shy, spotty, white, English guy. It wasn't doing very well. And I was really desperate to get him to like me. Do you know that way? You're just like, I just need something to get him to, to, get him to warm to me. And they all like golf. Two brother-in-laws and the dad, they all like golf. And I'm rubbish at golf. I know nothing about golf, but I thought I'm happy to lie about my golfing credentials if it just means that they'll look at me and talk to me. So around the tea table every night, um, I would sit there and lie about playing golf or being interested in golf, anything. And it was going really well. In fact, I think I won them over in a week. It was going really well, that is, until the last day of my holiday, which should have been a great day. And my brother-in-law burst into the room with his golf clubs in his backpack. And he said, we're going for a game of golf. And I went, brilliant. <laughs> and we went to the golf. And I can remember very clearly, I can remember it now very clearly, looking down at this, what was getting a tinier and tinier white ball, thinking, how on earth am I going to hit that with a stick? How on earth is that going to happen? And it took one shot and one swing for me to be completely exposed somebody who could talk a good game and knew all about golf and could lie about golf and yet couldn't do it. I was completely exposed as a fraud. What does Jesus say about what we do? Do this and you will live, he says in the text. He says to his disciples, do not call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. Don't call me Savior and do nothing that I'm telling you to do. Don't get that I'm God and do nothing about it. Or even perhaps... In his strongest words, he says, what good is it, my brothers? And this is Jesus' brother James speaking. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith? And this is tough, isn't it? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Then the question, can such faith save him? I don't know what you've made of my talk so far. I don't know if the story of the Good Samaritan will last more than 10 minutes for the next 10 minutes of your life. Probably like me. You'll be able to drive out of here past the guy with the flat tire with the story of the Good Samaritan ringing in your ears and wish him well as he tries to fix his car and drive home. Probably like me, you'll be able to watch Comet Relief right through and cry at some of the stories and yet not give any money. But there's some really good lessons about how we show God's love to other people, how we witness to other people. The Bible says, live such good lives among the pagans, among everybody, that they will see your good works and see God. Think about it. What is the most effective way that we can witness? What is the most effective way we can reach other people? Preaching is a good way. Preaching works. I'm a big believer in preaching. I think I probably always will be. Even, even hellfire preaching on occasion, I don't mind. I've not heard it for a long time, but there are people that are saved and changed because of it. Friendship evangelism is probably the new thing, and I'm a big advocate of that as well, and I really think that that works. But I guess I've seen in both of these scenarios, people put their defenses up, put their backs up. If you are to confront somebody with an act of compassion and an act of love, what you see is that their barriers just drop away. They cave away. And instead of you having to say, let me tell you the gospel, let me tell you the good news, what they say to you is, why did you do that for me? They ask you, you don't need to ask them. Jesus would tell us that love is not just something that we know about, but it's something that we do. Just in closing, God would start with humility with us wherever we're at on our Christian journey, and maybe it's still coming for you 
it comes back around for me. Humility. Because God so loved the world, we should love it too by our actions. The knowledge that we have of what Christ has done in our life should spill over into loving actions. And we should do all of this to bring glory and honor to our God.